K-Town is a misnomer. It's called K-Town, but it's all Latinos. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, it's called so K-Town. What's yours? Yeah, that's called K-Town. I see a lot of little short, dark people. Yeah, here. puro, puro yeah. Oaxacan. Puro Oaxacan Koreans. <laughs> <laughs> Hi. Hola. Annyeonghaseyo. Okay, Dongseng, what are we doing here? Well, Nuna, we're doing a podcast. Another podcast? Another podcast, but this one's really special. <sighs> okay, tell me. Well, for those of you who don't know, my name is Jimmy Racinos, and I also go by JT or Jimbo Times, which is a website and a podcast dedicated to the city of L.A., and my relation to K-Town is very particular because of my parents and the place I've grown up in. My parents are from Oaxaca, Mexico on my mom's side. Love you, mama. And also El Salvador on my dad's side. And they just happened to make life in Central LA. And therefore, during my high school years, I had a few different options for schools, but because I was an adventurer then, as I am now. I went to a few of them, including a special school in K-Town, no longer in existence, but that at the end of the day, ultimately exposed me to other Central Americans, to African Americans, to Korean Americans, and then some. And so K-Town has been with me ever since. And now I really wanna talk further about this place as one to focus on, as one to look at, not just in the days ahead, but for much longer. And I can't wait to get into that. But first, tell me more about how you got here, Helen. Well, my name is Helen, and um, Helen H. Kim is the full name. I am a community-based uh, researcher and artist. And I got here, Jimmy, uh, through my parents deciding to leave their home country of South Korea to come to Los Angeles to start a new life. And our first American home was in Koreatown. And so this was my first time being in a place where people didn't all look like me, talk like me. And um, school was just a mix of kids who originated from all different parts of the world that I had no understanding of as a seven-year-old at the time. And Koreatown remained the central focus of our family life for many, many years to come. And now, as an adult, it's become a focal point and almost like a, um, a symbol of uh, just the way that my bicultural American identity was formed over the years. And, you know, some of those new experiences and new people that I met, they got lodged into the sub conscious, you know, as a formative aspect of my identity. But now I'm starting to really kind of get into all of that and understand the mysteries of that. And I am so excited to do that with you, Jimmy. And there's so many stories, not just my about my own identity, but so many stories of different um, people and perspectives and um, ideas that are built within Koreatown that are represented in Cape Town. And I'm really excited to dive into that. That is so cool. Thank you so much. And so before wow. we dive in, though, Jimmy, yeah. I was wondering if you had any interesting things happen to you today. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> wow, let's hear it. 
<laughs> Absolutely, because it's Friday, and this is the first ever K-Town is OK podcast by Jimmy Racinos and Helen H. Kim. And I decided at the top of the morning that, you know, just before we got together, it would be fun to have a few treats between us. Always fun to have treats. I love that we both know this. Yes. And so, actually, I mentioned to Helen that I was thinking about visiting a little shop in K-Town for a couple of lattes. And boy, did I ever. <laughs> so I drove up from out here on the East Hollywood Silver Lake side. And traffic was pretty smooth for the most part. Nice. Really, I was like pleasantly surprised getting through Normandy and going on to... 8th Street, and then going from 8th to Western. But when I got to Western... Uh oh As soon as you say Western, I knew there was going to be trouble. <laughs> when I got to Western, the very lane that I'm supposed to use to turn onto the street to visit my coffee shop is just completely overtaken by this massive semi-truck that is not going anywhere. Oh, that man. has completely taken up that space, and that forces me and a handful of other drivers have to go on to the next intersection to make a left and then another left and then a right to get back to Western, <laughs> okay? And it's just where LA is at nowadays because honestly, whether it's on Western or Franklin Avenue or whether you're going out to Glendale, there is construction everywhere mm -hmm. and that makes for a whole lot more congestion on top of the other congestion. But that aside, I finally get to our coffee shop and it is none other than Café de Mama, Korean-owned Café de Mama on Western Avenue. Pew, 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 pew. That's right. <laughs> and I walk into that shop, and I'm greeted by this fella who I had spoken with on the phone, and I... You talked to him on the phone before I you I placed got my there? order on the oh, phone. Oh, nice. Which was also great, because not every place does that. Yeah. You, like, nowadays, especially for these coffee shops... There are a lot of different people who would love to just call right in and place their order. I'm one of those people. You don't get that everywhere. Mm -hmm. So when I asked him if I could place my order online, he said, yeah, sure thing. Let me know what you need. And I got you covered. And sure enough, when I get in there, I, I walk in, I pick up our lattes as well as this little Rice Krispie treat. Can I see that? What's yeah. in it? It's like lots of sweetness. Okay. Oh, and sugar. I almost dropped it. Lots nice. of sweetness nice. and love. Recommend? Handmade. Totally recommend. Okay. Yeah, so shout out to Café de Mama because honestly that was the best part after like this somewhat strenuous turn of events literally over at Western Avenue. And, and the other part of it is that it says a lot about where especially K-Town is at because there's so much of this construction taking mm -hmm. place along these avenues and boulevards. And I think... This project, this podcast, is really going to allow us to get into that, among other things. Because when we say that there's a lot going on in K-Town, it's an understatement. Yes. Yeah. And I appreciate you braving the crazy traffic because now I'm sitting here enjoying this black sesame latte. Yeah. Am I going to get that at Starbucks? No. I don't think so. So, gracias. Kamsamnida. Uh, Shout out to Café La Mama. Yes and all of the entrepreneurs in K-Town. And I can't wait to get into more of this podcast with you for K-Town is okay. I love it. I have my thumb up for people who can't see this. 
Sounds good. So K Town is Oaxacan Korean. Before 2023, that was not a thing. But we have made it into a thing, and now it is going on and it is coming up. And really, when people ask what K Town is okay is all about, first off, we are noting that K Town is Oaxacan Korean. This is a shirt campaign that I, along with Helen, put together late fall of last year after this egregious discussion was leaked from LA City Hall. Since then, it's become not just a shirt campaign, but also a storytelling series, including interviews, including TikToks, Reels, YouTube Shorts, because all these various apps have slightly different names for the same thing. So, okay, I'm trying to pay respect to that. But it is, among other things, a diverse set of perspectives on this place known and regarded as Koreatown, smack dab in central Los Angeles, which has a plethora of different cultures and different histories right along with those cultures. And so that's what K-Town is okay is all about. And if I missed anything, by all means, you're more than welcome to add. You said it great, Jimmy. I think the only thing I would want to emphasize is that the idea that K-Town is Ohakan Korean isn't exclusive to those two um, groups that are represented in Koreatown, but that's to highlight an example of the diversity that sits within Koreatown. That's exactly right. And similar to so many things, when it comes to K-Town, this was born of fire. This is something that was initially sparked by the halls of power and the way that the halls of power see and don't see our communities. And so I think that you'll certainly hear more about exactly what led to K-Town is okay, but just keep that in mind for a moment. Before then, we want to thank a handful of people for really helping us get here, actually. Yeah, 100%, because I think, um, you know, Jimmy, you and I have like a pretty good idea of what the potentials of K-Town is okay is, but we're still kind of um, imagining the flesh and bones of it. But even at the the beginning, the onset of it, when it was just a t-shirt and like a, a brief comment on the leaked recordings of last fall, um, or it was recorded before, but you know, that came out last fall. Um, there are just some people who rose up and supported us right away and just understood the potential of what it could be and so we want to shout out to the early supporters who just immediately without hesitation bought the t-shirts 100 um not all of them are in la not all of them are even familiar with koreatown but they just really believe in the spirit and the heart of the thing um and also uh virgil normal which is a local boutique shop they carry amazing things and one of those amazing things was our k-town is okay t-shirts that's right i know for a fact uh several people who went there to pick up shirts that's right mm -hmm. yeah absolutely so that's one we also want to shout out my good friend and pal on the norcal side because yes people from la and the bay can still be friends <laughs> everyone i want to shout out samson because samson really has stepped up and supported us and allowed us to streamline more and more of the project's various incarnations. 
And so I really want to thank you, Samson, and shout you out and also let you know that the future is bright here, fam. The future is bright here, and you're a big part of that. So a big shout out to you and Veronica. Congrats to you all. They're newlyweds. That's awesome. Cheers. Yeah, I also want to quickly shout out Mickey of Koreatown Times, which is a really interesting zine. Um, she has connected us to different um, business owners in Koreatown, including Andrew of Boost Philly Cheese Steaks. And uh, she also introduced us or connected us with Sumi, who has a new shop coming up called Hunter and the Scholar. It's a stationary shop. It's going to be super dope, so look out for that. And also, um, ooh, I feel like, you know, Jimmy, you should shout out Donya. Yes, absolutely. Doña Carmen, mucho gusto conocerla. Doña Carmen is actually on the Pico Union side, and she owns a dry cleaning shop there. So if you need some dry cleaning, go visit Doña Carmen. She will totally have you. Tell her about K-Town is okay, and you'll see exactly why we're shouting her out today. Because she's just a huge supporter of community building and all of the legacy work that our communities take part in day in and day out. So much love to you, Mama. I can't wait to see your shop again soon. Yeah, Doña Carmen's shop is called Royalty Cleaners, and it's on Pico in Pico Union. Now, we would be remiss to shout out Doña Carmen and not shout out our connection to Doña Carmen originally, that is. So I'm going to let you shout out our next big supporter. Um, Doña Carmen's daughter, Melly. She has a Instagram called Vira Con Mel, which is her photography project, uh, among other things that she does, like podcasts and stuff. Also, um, her friend Gabriela of Oaxacan Youth Oral History Project, uh, which is a really awesome uh, thing that she's doing with the youth in um, the K-Town area. And then also Susan of Koreatown Class. Um, we will be talking more about these folks in coming episodes, but just know that they are supporting us and we are supporting them too. Cool. That's our list of supporters. Yeah. That's kind of a handful of people. And there are more. Mm-hmm. If you have like liked our stuff and shared our stuff and sent it to someone because you knew that they would appreciate it too, shout out to you because that's really, really the sort of heart and soul of how this project goes from one place to the next and reaches more and more people. So really want to express appreciation for all those who've taken a moment to affirm this. Okay, so K-Town is Oaxacan Korean. This was originally born last fall after these leaked recordings from LA City Hall in which not one nor two, but four different LA City representatives were recorded speaking about various communities in denigrating ways to say the least. And so shout out actually to the LA Times for first publishing the story. I remember it well. It was a Sunday night, and Sunday nights are not usually like the biggest news hours, but I am a news junkie, in case you didn't know, and I definitely got out to the LA Times website somehow that Sunday evening in October of 2022, and I learned there that these four representatives were thinking about Los Angeles very specifically in terms of who was going to get which cut. And they were also talking about who was getting cut out. And so at some point, they get to Koreatown in this talk of theirs. And they joke about Koreatown and who lives in K-Town and what K-Town actually means. 
One representative, Gil Cedillo, actually goes on to say that K-Town is a misnomer and that it's all Oaxacans. And then, of course, his colleague, Nuri Martinez, says, Oaxacans, K-Town, I see nothing but short, dark, pale people there. And it is from that point that I decide I'm going to reach out to one of my good pals and we're going to talk about this. And we're going to talk about just how to look at what they discussed and flip it on its head a little bit. So as to let people know that we heard what they said very loudly and clearly. But because I think it's important to delve in there a little further and and explore. I want to ask you, Helen, how it is that K-Town, especially as this community, has repeatedly been overlooked or dismissed or cast aside in a specific way. Can you say a little more about your understanding of that process, particularly from, say, L.A. City Hall or the halls of government in L.A.? Yeah, I think, um, you know, with Koreatown, it's it's an interesting um, element of Los Angeles um, present and Los Angeles history. And I think um, looking at Koreatown and all of its ins and outs, it just really gives you a case study of how um, the powers that be interact with or neglect um, people who maybe don't fall within the majority um, culture, community. Um, I think they're sort of left to their own devices. And um, yeah, and there's very little concern for them. And um, so I think one thing to note, particularly with the four individuals that were involved in that conversation, is that from the majority vantage point, um, it's not necessarily all white, but you know, it it, it does tend to be a white space. Uh, from that perspective, these four represent the underprivileged, represent the people who are migrant workers, who are immigrants, and who um, you know really need to be elevated. And so, I think the layer and complexity of what we're delving into is that. It's those people who are supposed to represent us who have within themselves these stratified biases, you know, which are not just a, a, a creation of those four individuals. They're representing what we understand to be pervasive with, with among our cultures and our communities. Um, and, yeah, and that's just played out in Koreatown and its history as well. And, um, you know, for me, I'm not necessarily a news junkie or a history junkie, but I have lived these experiences. And so I think a lot of what I bring is just lived experience perspective, you know, and I really lean on Jimmy and other folks that we get into conversations about to provide um, kind of solid historical context. But, you know, I was a high schooler when um, in 1992, um, at the end of April, I think it was April 29th, when the verdict came down for the policeman who beat Rodney King, uh, a black American man, and uh, the the policemen that were involved were white, and they were acquitted. And a few hours after they were acquitted, uh, this um, pandemonium broke out at the injustice of all of that. And that moved from South L.A. up to different areas of, of L.A., particularly Koreatown was one area that it was targeted. <clears throat> And at that time, especially in the early 90s, um, the folks who lived in Koreatown, and I'll speak specifically for Koreans because that's the community that I was more um, intimately just uh, or naturally a part of, um, 
the Korean immigrants, partic- particularly at that time, um, just came in with the assumption that they were not going to be represented nor have a place in um, the majority uh, society, in established culture, pol- politics, things like that. So they operated understanding um, the actual and perceived um, notion that that they have to take care of themselves. Um, but even so, because there was um, obvious violence and crime that was erupting starting on um, April 29th, which in Korean is known as Haigu, which literally means 429, citing the first day of the uprising or the unrest, um, they called 911 and their calls went unheard. Um, and uh, it is documented that the LAPD was instructed to protect the wealthier affluent neighborhoods that were surrounding all of the chaos, most of that, you know, uh, protected area being west of Koreatown. Um, And so what did the Korean community do? They had to go insular, which they have always done. Uh, And they had to lean on Radio Korea to then be kind of the switchboard and the central location from which all the critical information got out. Wow. Um, and, you know, you'll see documented images of merchants and neighbors and a family holding firearms on top of their properties or businesses to literally do for themselves what the city, what the, um, you know, uh, government was not going to do for them because they were not part of the majority culture. They were not part of that dialogue. Um they didn't think that there was a place for them because there really wasn't. They already inherently knew that, and there was no concern to create that space for them. And I think this is where visibility is so important because in the visibility forces a majority culture to see these inequities and to kind of have no choice but to create that space. But I think the critical thing that's happening now, and it's not just now, but it has been happening um, even before the um, 92 riots, but, you know, s- especially that was like a catalyst, is then for the community itself to look around, um, to raise its head from just kind of getting food on the table and establishing their American roots, but saying, okay, we have to do more than just have a business here. We have to do more than just make sure that our kids get an education. We have to create a place, you know, in the 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 dialogue, you know, and and I think that is now really coming to fruition because now it's the 1.5 generation, the second generation, some in some families that have longer histories, third generation that is saying, now we have the understanding of the culture that we live in, the community that we live in. Now we have um, a vernacular to talk about these things. Now we have the space um, to start looking at the trauma of all of that. And in part of looking at the Korean-American trauma is to then look at the trauma and the inequities that were happening with their brothers and sisters outside of the Korean-American community. That actually, when we're talking about community, it is more encompassing and it needs to be more encompassing. It needs to embrace. And in doing that, we have to look at some of the um, harm that we have created towards one another right and that's kind of what the leaked uh recording speaks to is that there's harm being done not just from the majority um but um from within the various um groups that feel disenfranchised we are then further disenfranchising within our communities and with other communities that we should actually be allies with yeah what i think is is really key to 
consider about, especially this moment in 1992 as well, are the, the confluence of factors that went into that moment in time, including the fact that at that point, the country was undergoing one of the heaviest recessions of the 20th century. Certainly the heaviest recessions since the Great Depression, according to a lot of different scholarship out there. And that was felt along racial lines in cities like Los Angeles. And so South Central became this place where jobs completely left and where families were essentially abandoned because there was little to no representation of their needs at this concerted level, given that black communities in Los Angeles and across the country were the reason for this policy known as redlining and and this way of segregating the city along racial lines, racial boundaries. And so when one thinks about that time and why things spiraled as they did, it is important to note that there were a lot of different folks, but especially African-American and immigrant, including Latino immigrant communities that were poorly resourced, if resourced at all. And so similarly to the way that you describe one community feeling as though they had been left behind, uh, certainly a lot of the scholarship following this event or this series of events would note that, hey, like there's a lot of abandonment throughout American history to contend with here. So these things end up colliding in a very specific way, but it's important to hold all of the factors responsible here. Yes. And, you know, when you start diving into the history of all of this, because it obviously didn't happen in, on April 29, 1992. I mean, that's an understatement. There is just a huge voluminous history of all of these um, things that happened, but in particular to the dyma- dynamic within Uh, the African-American community and incoming newer immigrant communities, refugee communities. The fact that there is academic language around these things um, tells you that it's it's a a momentous um, occurring history in the making that was known. So it's not that these things were going on under the covers and in corners and the powers that be didn't know. There is studies, there is investigations into these things to the point where there are textbooks with official language around things. For example, um, you know, in the 80s, there was all of this, um, these articles written about the black Korean conflict because there were these new immigrants who were settling in as merchants in these traditionally um, African-American communities as merchants. And even going back further before that, in the the 60s, there started, uh, they coined this term of the middleman minority where there's this new immigrant community that is neither um, the um, sort of original um, members of this new uh, of this impoverished community, traditionally most typically black. Um, so these new um, people would come in, and they were minorities in this sort of archaic term, uh, meaning that they were not white, and they were kind of seen as this broker between the impoverished black community and uh, the powerful, the politically powerful, the economically powerful, which traditionally, conventionally is white. And so 
they knew that this was happening, that there was this brokerage, that there was this inherent built-in conflict that was happening. And I feel like um, those in power just assumed that there was going to be this inherent conflict, but that they were going to leave it be because they just needed to protect it from growing out into the white neighborhoods, the affluent neighborhoods, right? And, and that this is why I say the um, L.A. uprising, the riots, there are several different you know, names to describe what happened in 92 that is like a perfect case study for that. And what happens when you can't contain that conflict and the people in conflict says, no, we're going to grow this as big as we feel it, as big as the injustice is, as big as the, um, the problems are. That's know? right. That's right. And, and there's so much here, clearly, right? There's so much that we can get into. I also want to shout out Radio Korea, just as you noted, because what a moment in human history for just a single sort of platform to engage an entire demographic in the midst of this turmoil, for that to save lives and save businesses, for that to play a pivotal role in keeping Koreatown part of central Los Angeles, part of LA as a whole together. That I think speaks to the power of platforms and especially community owned platforms and especially platforms in which we can place trust in. And there's a lot of that that we've talked about, right? Like we've, we've talked about how a certain media outlet might portray things, especially when it is led by people who might be called outsiders who may be considered outsiders versus what it looks like when folks are telling their own stories and when folks can account for or affirm one another in a very specific way. That's certainly something that took place through Radio Korea and all this time later, something that's taken place through K-Town is okay because it takes putting together a platform, putting together a space, and as you and I have said, Helen, giving people permission up to a point to ask questions, to make comments, to let us know how they see what we're putting together. It takes all of that to increase awareness with this subject that is complex, that is not made for just 60 second sound bites. That's gonna take some time. But that's what I like about K-Town is okay in 2023, it does feel like something emerging, something like a new world, something a little provocative, but something that is also very community-led. It, it comes from this place, and I think people have seen that and felt that, and that's why I'm so happy to note that we've engaged with folks ever since launching this project that I think is just going to keep on going. Yeah, and you know why? It's because our heart and our affection for the neighborhood and its people is evident. And I think that is, again, if I go back to the leaked recording, that's what's missing. There was no love, there was no care for the people, Hey, right? And we have this deep love and affection, and I think that is infectious. I think that is recognizable to people. Even, like I said, obviously people who have a history in Koreatown, who have a connection to Koreatown, it's easy why they step up and say, hey, we love what you do. But even people who've never been to K-Town, who are in Washington, D.C., um, they resonate because they feel the heart and they, they feel the love. And that reminds them of the love and the heart that they have for their histories, their families, their communities. That's right. And that's why this is American history. That's why, like, 
what we're doing with K-Town is okay is really looking at that new world because before all of these communities were next to each other, before we all lived in this globalized economy together, before these smartphones and these apps upended the world over, these discussions weren't as available to the broader public as they are now. So in a very specific way, even though we have a number of different challenges ahead as a set of communities in this city with such a complex history together, there's also a lot to celebrate. And that's what we reflect as well with K-Town is okay. So if you think we're doing well, it really is because the communities that we come from, the places we come from, they're doing it better. And we're just trying to be as good. <laughs> At least I am. <laughs> yeah, Jimmy, between you, this conversation, and Cafe de Mama, I am like caffeinated and pumped up and ready for anything. Let's go. Woo! <laughs> Hey, that's love. That's a lot of love from Mm K-Town. Okay, so we've talked about K-Town is okay. We've actually shouted out our supporters. We've now also talked about the history of Koreatown. I think that's pretty good for a first episode. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, it's time for lunch. I think so too. Yeah, especially given that one of us is so caffeinated here. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Let's get some food to Manuna's system. And for now... As you wait for the next episode, something you can do meanwhile is make certain that you hit the follow slash subscribe button for this podcast, as well as for the newsletter, which is in the show notes. The newsletter is going to contain a bunch of goodies, including shirts, including stickers that represent K-Town, that shout it out, and that you're really going to love wearing in and around LA or wherever you might be, because we're all from K-Town at the end of the day, if we really want to stand up for it. And once again, thank you, Helen, and thank you to K-Town and the people of K-Town. And I can't wait to do this again, because I've had such a good time this morning. Let's go. Okay, Dongzheng. Hasta luego. Ciao. Bye. Annyeong. Hey. K-Town's a misnomer. It's called K-Town, but it's all Latinos. Yeah, that's called K-Town. I see a lot of little short, dark people. Yeah, puro, puro Oaxacan. Puro Oaxacan Koreans.